Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. So let's go to page 135, which is in uh, chapter 4 of the section of the mayors, part 3. <coughs> and let's read a little bit here and see what they're talking, see what Isaac Asimov is talking about now. And this is again in the uh, first book, Foundation. Here it is. Bort was a trifle disconcerted, but didn't show it. The religion which the Foundation has fostered and encouraged, mind you, is built on strictly authoritarian lines. The priesthood has sole control of the instruments of science we have given uh, Anacreon, but they've learned to handle these tools only empirically. They believe in this religion entirely and in the uh, spiritual value of power they handle. For instance, two months ago, some fool tampered with the power plant in Thessalekian Temple. In the Thessalekian Temple, one of the larger ones. He contaminated the city, of course. It was considered divine vengeance by everyone, including the priests. Let's, what do you think? I would like you to take a look at this. This whole section here where in the foundation, when the foundation is being built up, we have a progress. One of the first things that happens is the foundation, in, in order to control the masses in the periphery, what does it turn to first? What mechanism of mass control does it turn to first? In the very beginning, they play the powers up against one another to keep the foundation in second. Say it again. In the beginning, they play the, the four major kingdoms surrounding them off against one another. One against another. That's to keep them from getting a base on... Terminus. Oh, Terminus, yeah. And then later on, they establish a religion based upon science. Like the... Because the periphery lost nuclear technology. Yeah. Well, the foundation, because of its absence of metals had to compact nuclear technology so they were able to perform miracles without it seeming that they're actually using any big apparatus. So they used religion to control the masses. And as you're saying correctly, they're, they're using religion to uh, control the distribution of technology so that the people have a worship for this type of stuff but they don't really they don't really know how to use it. That's exactly right. Can, let me read you an opinion piece from Thomas Friedman. This is in Wednesdays, February 1st. This is this last week, 2006. Fe Wednesday, February 1st, New York Times. Opinion piece with, from Thomas Friedman. Ready? So far, the democracy wave the Bush team has helped to... Oh, it's called Addicted to Oil. So far, the democracy wave the Bush team has helped to unleash in the Arab Muslim world since 9-11 has brought to power hardline Islamic fundamentalists in Iraq, Palestine, and Iran and paved the way for a record showing by the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. If we keep this up, in a few years, Muslim clerics will be in power from Morocco to the border of India. God bless America. <coughs> but is this all America's doing? Not really. It's actually the product of 50 years of petroleum or petroleum-based politics in the Arab Muslim world. The Bush team's fault was believing that it could change that, that it could break the Middle East addiction to authoritarianism without also breaking America's addiction to oil. 
That's the illusion here. In the Arab world, oil and authoritarianism are inextricably linked. How so? Let's start with the iron rule number one of Arab Muslim political life today. You cannot go from Saddam to Jefferson without going through Khomeini, without going through a phase of mosque-led politics. Why? Because once you sweep away the dictator or king at the top of any Middle East state, you go into a free fall until you hit the mosque, as the U.S. discovered in Iraq. There is nothing between the ruling palace and the mosque. The secular autocratic <coughs> regimes, like those in Egypt, Libya, Syria, and Iraq, never allowed anything to grow under their feet. They never allowed the emergence of any truly independent judiciary, media, progressive secular parties, or civil society groups, from women's organizations to trade associations. The mosque became an alternative power center because it was the only place the government's iron fist could not fully penetrate. As such, it became a place where people were able to associate freely, incubate local leaders, and generate a shared opposition ideology. That is why the minute any of these Arab countries hold fair, free and fair elections, the Islamicists burst ahead. In Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood won 20% of the seats. Hamas went from nowhere to, governing, to a governing majority. In both societies, the ruling secular parties, the NDP in the case of Egypt and Fatah in the case of Palestine, were spurned as corrupt appendages of the authoritarian state, which they were. Why are there not more independent, secular, progressive opposition parties running in these places? Because the Arab leaders won't allow them to sprout. They prefer that the only choice their people have is between the state parties and religious extremists, so as to always make the authoritarian state look indispensable. When Ayman Noor, a liberal independent in Egypt, ran against President Hosni Mubarak. He was thrown into prison as soon as the election was over. Thanks for playing democracy, now go to jail. It is not this way everywhere. In East Asia, where the military regimes in countries like Taiwan and South Korea broke up, these countries quickly moved towards civilian democracies. Why? Because they had vibrant free markets with independent economic centers of power and no oil. Whoever ruled them had to nurture a society that would empower its men and women to get educated and start companies to compete globally because that was the only way they could thrive. In the Arab Muslim world, however, the mullah dictators in Iran and the secular dictators elsewhere have been able to sustain themselves in power much longer without ever empowering their people, without ever allowing progressive parties to emerge, because they had oil, or its equivalent, massive foreign aid. Hence, iron rule number two, removing authoritarian leaders in the Arab Muslim world, either by revolution, invasion, or election, is necessary for the emergence of stable democracies, but it is not sufficient. The only way the new leaders will allow for real political parties, institutions, free press, competitive free markets, and proper education, a civil society, is if we also bring down the price of oil and make internal reform the only way for these societies to sustain themselves. People change when they have to, not when we tell them to. Let's think about that sentence a lot when we talk about Isaac Asimov if, and psychohistory. 
if you just remove the dictators and don't also bring down the price of oil, you end up with Iran, with mullah dictators replacing military dictators and using the same oil wealth to keep their power, their people, quiet and themselves in power. Only when oil is back down to $20 a barrel will the transition from Saddam to Jefferson not get stuck in Khomeini land. In the Middle East, oil and democracy do not mix. It's not an accident that the Arab world's first and only true democracy, Lebanon, never had a drop of oil. How do we relate this to what Isaac Asimov is talking about with the development. Remember what we have here, this novel, set of novels is not really about the collapse of the old empire as much as it is about the building of the new empire. How do we relate that to what's going on here, especially with the passage we just read about the uh, priesthood and technology? So the first, first thing that happened was after near survival was the development of this religion. What is going on here? Think in terms of empires, including your empire book. Think in terms of empires. What happens with empires? Think of empires. What are they often used? Well, a lot of them used, in the past, used um, religion um, to tell the populace that their leader was some form of deity or was graced with the power of the gods or the gods' favor um, in order to rule an empire. And um, in foundation, Asimov kind of sets up this religion that controls... I mean, it, it's like it's sort of like a blending of what's happening in the Middle East. It's like the religion, but it controls the natural resource, which it doesn't in the Middle East. But, I mean, the only resources they have are nuclear weapons. And, um, so... Well, there's just so much difference, nuclear I mean, in terms I, of foundation sorry, and oil in terms of the Middle East. Well, one is a natural resource, but it's the... It's the well, I guess it's an export. It's not really a primary necessity of the region. They don't really use it. They just export <coughs> it. I don't know. It's interesting. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, in general, like... When you have an empire, in order to keep it successful, you can't have people like breaking away and going off and doing their own thing. Yeah. So with this like new religion, or in the case of the article, you have this one thing that everyone has in common that they can believe in and trust in. That it's kind of a way to manipulate like other things, but at least all the people are bound together. And I think that's one of the key things to a successful empire. Yeah. Just to keep everyone under the same like, page, basically. Yeah. Uh, this common homogeneous way of thinking. Go ahead. Yeah. So, do you see how this interesting thing? How many empires do we see that actually start up and they're based on some theological understanding? If you look at over time, it's a way to control people. It's a way to have a, instill a belief system without actually instilling a control over the. The, the the mechanisms of power, the actual use of nucleics or nuclear energy in Asimov's situation, but in the uh, uh, in the Middle East, it's not that the the common people on the street have actual control over the oil, but that oil is embedded now with a religion. In fact, if you think about it, the people of the Middle East that are that are in oil wealthy countries have very little actual access to the wealth of that oil. But 
it's the religion that actually puts the glue in the societies. Now, Thomas Friedman is raising a really good point. What would happen if the religion fell apart? What would happen if Islam fell apart suddenly? What would be left? Nothing. Nothing. That's exactly it. One of the great democratic theorists is uh, Robert Dahl and Ipet Yale. And one of the very great points that he raised was that rules that you set, that you put in a constitution or even a body of laws, really don't cause people to act in a certain way. That our constitution doesn't create the framework that allows us to operate. Britain, for example, has no constitution, yet they're a very vibrant, functioning democracy. That the constitution really codifies a set of behaviors that the participants in the society already agreed to follow in the first place. That's what they wanted to do. They were ready for that. They just put it all together and wrote it all down, but that's where they were. That's the page they were on. But if you take our constitution and photocopy it and give it to a developing society, say Iraq or some other country, Afghanistan or some country in Africa or some country in South America, it won't work. It just won't work. They're not there. The masses aren't at that page. And so <coughs> this idea of a religion, as you mentioned, was it gets them all on the same page. It gets them all on that same spot. But then you, where do you go from there? Well, where does Asimov go from there? And where do we relate that to Thomas Friedman's piece? What would have happened in those East Asian countries that didn't have oil? What, ha what did happen there? What's that? He said that there was military Speak a little louder, because you're on the said there were military I can't get it. It's too far away. This, this, this military dictatorships, military power. They went to a military dictatorship. But what happened after that? They went to a democratic form of government. Why? Because they didn't have the bank that had the vibrant free trade. What do you get with free trade? What's unusual about free trade? When you think of the mosque, or if you think of a state religion like you have with the foundation, the first element of the new empire. What do you get <coughs> with, the, with, with that in terms of homogeneous or hetero? Oh, go ahead. Well, you get, you get culture, you get other people's ideas. Other people's ideas, culture? Part of trade. And you get uh, education also becomes a more important thing because in a free trade society, you get better jobs if you are educated. You get education, you better jobs. Once you've got an educated populace, it lessens the power that the mosques have over the populace because what they do is, like you said, they give everybody on the same page, give everybody a set of models. But the way they install, instill the laws is by sh like blind belief in the ideals of the religion. And once, you once a certain level of education has been reached, people have the ability to think through these ideas for themselves. So then the religion tends to weaken and lose its control of people. Yeah, that's right. And then the, the religion tends to diminish as people have more education. When they have education, go ahead. I don't think it's the religion as much as controlling 
the region as much. It's just the people. I mean, that's the genius of using Islam as the religion. Like, oh, the religion specifically says this oil is granted to us and we have power. I mean, I don't think any of the people believe that. But what are they going to do? I mean, you hear about the stories of Saddam Hussein and his torture chambers and stuff. So I don't think it's a religion itself. I just think they're using the religion as a way to get the people to understand and I don't think the people buy it, but they have no choice. It's not like they can just stand up and say, I, I don't agree with you. Well, Saddam Hussein would have other measures of doing this. You're I don't think it's a religion itself, because if you actually look at it, you know, even when they went back to Iraq, most people don't support, most people do support a democracy there. But, I mean, can't just all of a sudden this, and, and the way America, a lot of the things came out about the prison, it was like, how do you support America? And how do you, you know, it was, they're like in a, weird state because I mean they had just had a dictator now they have this new country which almost is the same thing they're like well it's not like America's doing anything different for us I mean what's what do we need to so we can't just say oh I mean if Islam fell apart then everything would work or anything like that I just think it's, the religion is there and the people in power are just using it as a way to control everyone else actually we can we can say a good example here Afghanistan before you know, Afghanistan really wasn't controlled by a theological center before the Taliban. What, what, and what happened then? What was what was what was the political nature of Afghanistan? It wasn't theological. It was all these warlords. What was the basic nature? What was the governing aspect of? Or look, or look at another Islamic country, Somalia. What's the nature of Somalia or Afghanistan prior to the Taliban? Was that? There was no central military. And once the Soviets left, what happened? It just sort of deteriorated. I mean, there were just, I thought it was just a bunch of conflicting. No one really had a. It was a mess. Total flame on any sort of It power. was a total mess. <laughs> Do you see what Islam offers? The old, when there's nothing else in the society, Islam offers coherence because the alternative is chaos. Now, what is Thomas Friedman talking about? You raise some really great points about religion, and you raise some really great points about what would happen if Islam fell apart. Well, that's not going to fall apart. But the question is, what about these East Asian countries? When you had this religion, I mean, when you had this education that they were getting, was it all the education that you get with... For Islam, there's one education. You learn the precepts of the theology and how to follow those precepts and thus to have the society under control. Isn't that exactly what the foundation does with its religion? They have these priests that go out that teach the precepts of the religion of the foundation. It's that one thing that they learn. What happened when you raise the issue though, of education? Education, what kind of education? Is it the education where everybody goes to the same class and learns the same thing? Not in the foundation. In the foundation, there's a like separate school where all priests go to learn theological stuff. And the foundation citizens themselves, who know that the religion is a hoax, are educated in the foundation schools. And the education that like, kind of weakens the gospel of religion 
would be a secular education like the one we have. Yeah. Compared to like in most of the Islamic countries, any education you get comes from like a theological standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, and you're could you close yeah. that just so that the, the, the noise is Yeah, there's a lot of walking this morning with shoes that make huge noise. But, yeah, but basically what you're saying is that the education, that the secular education that they get at the foundation was regarding to all types of things, technologies and everything like that. The stuff they were learning, exporting, though, was the, the, was the theological stuff. Well, in East Asian countries, what Thomas Friedman is talking about, the education that you're talking about there is diverse. They had heterogeneous economies. Since they didn't have oil, they had to they had to develop heterogeneous societies with heterogeneous economies and the education was all over the board and what you got is diversity. This key is diversity. And then what developed out of that diversity? Markets. Where do you get the big economic growth happening right now? China, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, India. Those are huge, diverse economies with lots of with lots of you know heavy emphasis on education, great diversity and stuff like that. And what are they doing with that? What's the first thing you're doing? What are we spending our money on every time we spend one dollar? Every time we actually for every six dollars that we spend on Chinese goods, they buy one dollar of ours. What are what are they doing with all that education and diversity that they're getting? They're making money from the, from goods. They're trading. So, what we have here is the foundation using this religion to develop coherence in the society, and the alternative is chaos. And the foundation couldn't exist in the center of chaos, so they had to control the peripheral worlds. But then what does that theological understanding have to give way to if you're going to have a society that becomes vibrant? Pardon me? Trade. It's got to give way to trade. It's got to destroy itself. It's got to end. So theologically dominated societies must end, but they have to give away to, to give way to something. And one of the things we find from political theory is, and, and big people with regard to this are people like Richard Joseph at um, uh, Northwestern, uh, Dick Sklar, Richard Sklar in um, UCLA, and a variety of others. They talk about fragments of democracy. When you don't have full democracy, you have fragments. You have little components, labor unions, uh, dental associations, doctor associations, bar associations. You have PTAs, parent-teacher associations, school boards. You have many different groups all over, commercial-oriented, trade-oriented, every imaginable group that you can get. And so these groups are organizing their own special interests. And when you have all of those diverse groups, you don't have the need for a single, solid, dominating and controlling theology. In fact, if there is one, it's got to leave. Because those groups need freedom, need freedom to operate. They need freedom to operate. And so what we see here is that first, we have the foundation actually using these religious groups. But then, uh, things change. Let's go over to page 162, which is chapter 8 
in the uh, section on the mayors. 162. Let's read here. There is an old fable, says... This is at the bottom. There is an old fable, says Hardin, Hardin, as old perhaps as humanity, for the oldest records containing it are merely copies of other records, still older, that might interest you. It runs as follows. A horse having a wolf as a powerful and dangerous enemy lived in constant fear of his life. Being driven to desperation, it occurred to him to seek a strong ally, whereupon he approached a man and offered an alliance, pointing out that the wolf was likewise an enemy of the man. The man accepted the partnership at once and offered to kill the wolf immediately. If his new partner would only cooperate by placing his greater speed at the man's disposal, the horse was willing and allowed him to place bridle and saddle upon him. The man mounted, hunted down the wolf, and killed him. The horse, joyful and relieved, thanked the man and said, Now that our enemy is dead, remove your bridle and saddle and restore my freedom. Whereupon the man laughed loudly and replied, Never, as and applied the spurs with a will. Silent still, the shadow that was Venus did not stir. Hardin continued quietly, You see the analogy, I hope. In their anxiety to cement forever domination over their own people, the kings of the four kingdoms accepted the religion of society that made them divine. And that same religion of science was their bridle and saddle, for it placed the lifeblood of nuclear power in the hands of the priesthood, who took their orders from us, be it noted, and not from you. You killed the wolf, but you could not get rid of... Do you get the idea? You could not get rid of man. How's the connection here? When you do put that when you do put that controlling force, what would, if you were to connect this with fundamentalism and Islam, as Thomas Friedman is talking about it, what would fundamentalism and Islam be? What part of the analogy would be? What would it be? The wolf? Would it be the man? Would it be the, the horse? Would it be? Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, just uh, it's. It's an inculcated religion in the region, and you can't get rid of it. I mean, it. The people wanted to be free of a dictator, and I'm not actually sure how religion helped them to do that. But it's the thing they can't get rid of now. They didn't want to be free of a dictator, as to have some sort of control in their society. Yeah, but I'm trying to. Gave them control. But now, like, they side with it. They can't get rid of it just by saying, okay, we want freedom. It's not so easy. What would be the wolf? The, 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 the chaos of, like... The uh, chaos. The wolf is what we saw in Somalia, is what we still see in Somalia and, and pre-Taliban Afghanistan. The wolf is the chaos. And it's a dangerous thing and it'll kill everybody. Okay. And now what you're saying is the man, the controlling man, is the use of religion to do that. But once you have it, you can't get rid of it. Now, how does, what does Asimov say how you get rid of it? How do you move on? You can. At least, I, I mean, once you, 
once the four kingdoms had settled themselves with the religion of nuclear technology, they were sort of stuck with the priests because the priests were the only ones who knew how to control it. I mean, they'd effectively done more than subject themselves to a religion. They'd altered their entire way of life based on a technology that they knew nothing about. And so, you know, that technology and its founders helped them, you know, get rid of the wolf. But then, well, I mean, I guess it works two ways. I mean, the kingdom saddled themselves with religion in order to get rid of the chaos. But then the people had still, like, the people were still saddled with that. The people were still stuck with that religion even after, like, their dictator was gone. Like, in the larger sense that he's talking about it, that's true. But then in the smaller sense, people of the individual kingdoms saddled themselves with this technology, and the mayor had gotten rid of their dictators, and now all of a sudden they were saddled with nuclear technology and no dictator anymore. But they couldn't get well, rid of it. How many people were so much as it was the kings who basically... The kings. Because it... Because, like, religion is very good at preventing uprisings by making the king semi-divine. So in this case, like, with holding with Rome all in the floating chair. So the king was seen as a god, and you can't go against a god, not in, like, the minds of the people. So it, it, it like, ruined any chance of revolution or anything like that occurred. Mm. I mean, yeah, the kings were the ones who got in power, but it was the foundation that was still controlling everything because they had the religion. But the kings weren't going to complain. The alternative was chaos in their individual kingdom. But if they accepted this religion, then they have power over their people, but mm-hmm. the foundation has power over all four of them. Now, what if you feed a lot of resources into the theological components? A lot, and you just keep on feeding it. What is, well, actually, what does Thomas Friedman say here with regard to a current Islam, fundamental Islam? How, what, what is keeping these fundamental Islamic states fundamental and Islamic rather than moving into secular complex heterogeneous societies with vibrant educational and trade because it's the first stage of like or it's the like it's all that was left after the dictator was gone and I think it's interesting that Thomas Friedman sees it as a free fall because it just sounds like you're moving downward but I mean maybe that's just me but I mean you know, the dictator disappeared, and then all of a sudden people were falling. Not we were moving on. We were falling. Or, you know, they were falling. And then, you know, the next thing they hit on was Islamic, you know, leadership and, you know, Islamic religion. So does that say democracy is like the bottom of the heap? Like, when you fall in as far as you can go, you hit democracy. I think it's the opposite. the worst forms of government that we have found. Go ahead. I think it's the opposite. I think this is the first step towards... I think every major empire has this problem with religion. Good. And then eventually they realize it's not, it doesn't work. Religion can't be part of government. I think America had the same problem initially. We didn't have a free religion. But then once they realize that you can't control people when it's based on religion, religion should be separate from government, then they'll progress. And then once people realize that, I mean, you can't. I mean, you can't have religion no matter what religion it is. Well, then let me ask you the question. What is keeping fundamental Islam in power so long and so strong people are so scared that God or whatever their God is will condemn them for going against their religion they're too scared to stand up and fight but even then what's mm-hmm. keeping what's I keeping think it's the oil because of these that's it's, what a, it's the power that the countries like America give these countries I mean they have an immense amount of power America's not going to take a chance against that 
they would rather help the how many situations has America helped people like Saddam Hussein put a people like Saddam Hussein in power and Osama bin Laden in power it's because of the oil and people forget that I mean we don't we America is like doesn't really care about these countries as much as people think they want the oil and they don't care who they have to put in power to do it it's a gas station exactly so as long as these countries still have oil I mean once these countries have no oil America has no use for them America care less with you know but until they have oil they're almost doing the opposite effect they're like pushing these people even worse even lower because the people have nothing to stand on America is backing these countries up or not even just America all of the developed nations are using this oil so it's not the people are afraid of like religion they, they know that's not the case they know they, it's their religion is telling them that they need to follow these oppressive dictators it's well, what can we do? But the same thing is like a, it's a double-edged sword because if ever there were a leader in the Middle East who was strong enough independently to control enough of the oil to uh, to minimize supply to the rest of the free world, he'd control the entire world. I mean, the entire, like, every developed country's economy runs on oil. I mean, all of our cars would stop working. I mean, supposedly we have, like, you know, oil reserves out in the Midwest or, you know, like, in that we've stockpiled underground and stuff like that. But, I mean, basically, if someone were wise enough and powerful enough to take over enough of the Islamic states in the Middle East, they'd run the world. Have you noticed the state of the Middle East, though? Like, it's in a constant turmoil. Like, despite, uh, like, there being the centralized religion... Well, that's that's what would be it. I mean, I if mean, someone were powerful enough, the, the, like at the moment you're in the best state for the developed world because the fear that the Islamic states will band together again, if they did band together, right. again, like you're saying, they would stand no chance because our economy would just go to a halt. Yeah. So only by like keeping a uh, constant eye on the situation there, like the. Uh, I'm not sure, but like the Iraqi war, it put more turmoil in there, and it's tried, they tried to install an American government. But that religion is, uh, it's, it, um, that like if, but that religion is what would make the control, the, the unified control of that area possible. I feel like just because if there were a powerful enough religious leader in the Islamic world who could unify that part of the world. And I think that, um, but aren't you, know, you, aren't you aren't you talking about more theology then? Well, you are talking about more theology. I'm, but I'm saying like the same sort of thing almost happens in foundation. Uh, they don't have they don't have a uh, an overarching religious leader, but I mean, all four of the surrounding kingdoms are basically run by you know this religion of nuclear power. Well, let's talk now about what happens next. Let's talk about what happens next. What does Asimov actually tell us? Let's go over to page 168, which is on chapter 9 of the mayor's thing. This is the last chapter before we get into part 4, which is the traitors. Okay, 168. And uh, near the top it says, The spiritual power, while sufficient to ward off attacks of the temporal, is not sufficient to attack in return. Because of the invariable growth of the counteracting force known as regionalism or nationalism, the spiritual power cannot prevail. I'm telling you nothing new, I am sure. What is he talking about? That the, like they can only use religious power as a means of defense, but it's only a temporary means. You yeah. can't put your entire... Like, 
but you can't put all of your eggs in this one basket of religious power because, like we say, there will eventually spin up trade, there's counter That's exactly right. The spiritual power doesn't last very long. But it see, gets finished. You can only use it for so much because there's a constant growth in nationalism, regionalism. And how do you? What, what's an, what's another way to put nationalism and regionalism? You can say the word diversity. This idea of a single monolithic, whatever, gives way to diversity. I don't think this is true, though. I think that. I mean, I feel like, at least in the case of this novel, I mean. Basically, all the four surrounding kingdoms, their entire social structure is based on nuclear technology. I mean, the foundation did a very good job of, you know, making all of these four kingdoms dependent on nuclear technology. And if spiritual power is what's keeping those <coughs> things running, I don't feel like, you know, any amount of, you know, time passing is going to alter that. I mean, those people are still going to be dependent on nuclear technology. And as long as the foundation controls the education of those people in nuclear technology... They have no choice but to But it does. Now we get into the second novel. That does happen. That's exactly what happens. It falls apart. The theology gives way. What do you need? What is the transition point? What does Asimov talk about the transition point between when you go from the theologically dominated world or galaxy or realm of the galaxy to the next phase, which is the traitors? Yes, and what does he call that time period, that, that time when you go through this transition? What kind of a thing is that called? The transition from one dominant paradigm, a theological society, to a commercial society. What's you, When you go through the wall and transit finally, what's that called? starts with the word Selden. Go ahead. A Selden crisis. Now, it so happens that we have in social sciences the exact same thing. We have crises of, de- of, de- of, 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 of political development. And some of the great people, the, we have crises of economic development, crises of political development. If you look at stages of development for economics, we often, there's an there's a economic theoretician long ago wrote about called uh, Rustow, who, who wrote about the these developments <coughs> as uh, going from one phase to the next to the next. And then another political theoretician called Organsky talked about comparable political stages from one stage to the next as countries unify and become more diverse and, and so on. And then there was another political theoretician called Lucian Pai who said... But when you transit between those phases, those stages of so- social evolution, there's going to be crises. They don't just... One, one epoch of development doesn't just stop and the next one start. The first one t- has a growth period, followed by a maintenance period, followed by a decay period, and then finally, as it's getting weaker and weaker, and the other one is... and the other the other elements of change, which in this case is the mercantilist society, the trading society, starts to grow up. At some point in the balance, the mercantilist or trading society becomes more powerful than the theologically dominated society. And there is a tipping point, a crisis point, a catastrophe point, when a Selden crisis, when 
one equilibrium phase gives way to another equilibrium phase. And you move suddenly, suddenly, through a Selden crisis, from a theologically dominated society to suddenly a mercantilist or trading dominated society. And that Selden crisis is the crisis, is the crisis period. But the trends in the society that take you from the theologically dominated to the trading society, they were actually moving on a continuous fashion. This theologically dominated society was, or elements of the society were moving in a continuous fashion, and the trading elements were moving in a continuous fashion. But at some point, the balance became unsustainable for the old regime, and a new regime takes over. And it looks sudden. That's the crisis point. So it's really interesting. A smooth growth of two periods, one happening before the other, but they overlap. Theological versus mercantilist or trading. They overlap, and at some point in the overlap, there is a crisis, a Selden crisis. That's what he was talking about. What Thomas Friedman is talking about is what's keeping the Islamic <coughs> fundamentalist societies going so that they're not going through their Selden crisis is oil. You're giving them more and more money to sustain themselves. Eventually that's going to collapse. The oil is going to go away. Okay? And it's only got, what, 20 years max. And Saudi Arabia is already peaking in terms of its oil output. It can't get any more than what it's getting. So after this, it's downhill. So by the time 19, uh, 2020 rolls around, there basically is not going to be... there. When President Bush said the other day, we need to move in terms of alternative fuels. Uh, I mean, Jimmy Carter said that back in the 1970s. And he said it at the time when it needed to be taken seriously. Now it's too late. We're going to go through it a rock and a hard place. And President Bush was talking about reducing our oil dependence by the year 2025. There won't even be oil in 2025. Who are you trying to get? It will have gone through our crisis. And what Jimmy Carter was trying to do back in the 1970s is to make that transition slower, more gradual, smoother. But, you know, that's history. Uh, the, uh, the reaction against Jimmy Carter stuff was super strong. When, when Ronald Reagan came in and you had that pulling out by the roots all of the alternative energy uh, investment that had been made during the Carter years to stop the development of alternative forms of energy so that you really had to rely back on traditional oil, carbon fuels, coal, and then nuclear. Those, that was really set in stone so much that when President Clinton came in power, he said, he said basically he wasn't going to fight the energy industry like that because the reaction was just too strong. It was too heavy, too important a group, too big a group. It was too big a gorilla to wrestle with because he saw what happened to Jimmy Carter. So President Clinton did other things, worked on other issues, but he didn't really work on the energy issue. Now we're seeing the result of it, which is we have sustained a, a bunch of countries in an unsustainable fashion that could not survive by themselves in this extended theological realm and they otherwise would have turned to be much more alike if they didn't have the oil, according to Thomas Friedman. They would have been much more diverse, much more happy. They would have been diverse economies like East Asian economies with vibrant universities, vibrant economies, technologies all over the place. They were cursed with the oil. 
And they were coerced with having us as friends who wanted that oil because we were allowing them then to keep their 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 social control in the theological realm or 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 the dictatorial realm just as long as they gave us that oil. So that's the really what Thomas Friedman is sort of adding to this debate. It's very very interesting how uh, you can actually look at the Asimov the Asimov element and actually see it operating here and now. Let's go over to the second book, Foundation and Empire, and turn to page 30 and 31. And this is in chapter 3, The Dead Hand. And this is a, this is bringing up a little bit of a, of a different element. And to introduce this element, I want to mention, remember we talked about the Selden crisis? And there is a element of mathematics which some of you may become interested in. I teach nonlinear mathematics and political science, so some of you who proceed may end up taking some of my courses. That I, you know, people take my courses without a lot of mathematical background. But I don't expect that in political science. So, as long as you've had high school algebra, I, I take you in. But at the end, you're able to do a lot of nonlinear stuff. There is a theory of mathematics that covers these crises, these transition periods. And it's called catastrophe theory. And I wrote a master's degree, a master's thesis on catastrophe theory. And I've written about catastrophe theory in a number of my books uh, since I've become a professor. And catastrophe theory is where you have where you have things that go on continuously for a long time. You might call it the dominant regime, where the dominant paradigm keeps going, but another element starts growing, such as a theologically based society but then the trading starts, the diversity starts. Tensions between the two equilibrium realms that are competing for the, for the, for, to, for the control of the society build up, and finally you get to a tipping point and boom, you get a snap. Well, that, that snap is the, Sel- is the Selden crisis. And we actually have now the mathematics, the elements of the mathematics to start developing this, un- this understanding of these Selden crises, these large epochs of time and the transitions. So we not only have people like Rustow, Organsky, and Lucius Pye telling us the theory of these developments, we also have the mathematical theory that allows us to start putting these things back together. So this idea of psychohistory is actually really quite vibrant and alive. Well, anyway, let's go to page 30 because he's talking a little bit about something different now. Okay, and again, this is on page, uh, this is on chapter 3. Near the end of uh, chapter 3. It was that psychohistory which Selden and the group he worked with applied in full force to the establishment of the foundation. The place, time, and conditions all conspire mathematically and so inevitably to the development of the second galactic empire. Rios's voice trembled with indignation. You mean that this art of his predicts that I would attack the foundation and lose such and such a battle for such and such a reason? You are trying to say that I am a silly robot following a predetermined course into destruction? No, replied the old patrician sharply. I have already said that the science had nothing to do with individual actions. It is the vaster background that has been foreseen. Then we stand clasped tightly in the forcing hand of the goddess of historical necessity, of psychohistorical necessity, prompted Barr. And if 
I exercise my prerogative of free will, if I choose to attack next year or not to attack at all, how pliable is the goddess? How resourceful? Barr shrugged. Attack now or never, with a single ship or all the force of the empire, by military force or economic pressure, by candid declaration of war or by treacherous ambush, do whatever you wish in your fullest exercise of free will. You will still lose because of Harry Seldon's dead hand? No, because of the dead hand of the mathematics of human behavior that can neither be stopped, swerved, or delayed. The two faced each other in deadlock until the general stepped back. He, simply, he said simply, I'll take that challenge. It's a dead hand against a living will. Whoa, what's he talking about here? I mean, the whole thing with he wanted to attack the foundation, but they were, they were so confident that they would win, they didn't really care. Because almost like Harry Seldon was almost like a political scientist. Yeah. It wasn't. He was. It was a little scientist. bit more. It was a little bit glorified in terms of like everything worked exactly. But I mean, he pretty much predicted the rising of a empire. I mean, he said, "I'll oh, go through transition phases, religious control, and then trade." And he didn't predict anything new. But of course, I mean, science fiction. So I mean, some of those things are. He was a spell. He was a stellar scientist as well. He wrote. Mm-hmm. He wrote textbooks on chemistry. He wrote over four hundred and fifty books, nonfiction as well as fiction. Is uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I was just gonna say, in the whole passage, it seems like the guy doesn't want to believe in all the stuff that, despite all of the predictions and the mathematical, like equations, he can still beat like destiny or whatever. He has the, enough power to overcome it. Yeah. What is he talking about? The idea of you can't predict the individual, but you can predict the masses. What is he talking about there? Why? How can he say? You are going to lose your war, but I can't. I don't care what you do as an individual. You'll still lose. <laughs> what is he talking about? It seems like the equation as a whole predicts like the future, like like they're saying in like a large mass. But like each individual person can exercise their free will, and they can't determine what that happens or what they do. But still, the outcome is going to be the same. It doesn't matter what those people do. Yeah, because one person can't control the feel the thoughts all the people around them. I mean, that's what happened with the mule. I mean, he actually had the power to do that. Whatever he thought, everyone around him thought. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's why the plan kind of fell apart there. But, I mean, the general couldn't make the entire populace think the way he wanted. Or Actually, that's a great idea. Bring that back when we get to the mule. The mule is so important in all of this. Yeah, but the mule was different in that he didn't... It wasn't the fact that he could project his thoughts. It was the fact that he was one man who had such a profound impact on his... That's no, exactly. that is what I'm saying, like... Whatever he felt, whatever he wanted to do, he could have that same emotion around him. Everyone felt his... Everyone wanted to do exactly what he wanted to do because he could force him to feel that way. Now, let's enter the discussion of the mule by first resolving the elements of psychohistory because mule is an aberration. Mule is... What is the psychohistory as we're understanding now? It's it's, it's statistical, right? Go ahead. Psychohistory is like the process of applying... Economic and political theory to the masses, to large groups of people. That's right. In fact, when statistics, it's a statistical predictive hist- uh, uh, theory. When statistics is used to predict anything, you are going to have. What, what's that? You have to have a large sample, it's always going to be an element of uncertainty. When it, say it again. You actually have a large enough sample size for the stats to actually work. You have to have a large sample size for the statistics to work. And what do you know about any one 
one element. Any one element is just one data point, a datum, in a, in a collection. And that one datum is irrelevant relative to the large body in the sample. So what we're talking about is in a statistical science, you don't look at the one elements. You look at the body of all of the elements and you look at where the averages are, where the slopes are, where is the relationship between the variables, and that's what you're predicting. You're predicting the relationship between variables. You're not looking at one particular person. So this is what you're ta he's talking about when he, he talks about the mathematics of human behavior. The averages can't be stopped. You're just one element in an average. And the averages are based on millions and billions of people. But you're just one, one, one of all of those people. So no matter what you do individually, it's not going to make a difference. Well, this of course represents a big element that we haven't discussed yet, the idea of free will and determinism. Meaning, on the individual... <coughs> Excuse me. That hurt me more than you think. That's my third sneeze since my hernia operation. <laughs> Believe me, it is not good. It's one of those things where you just say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But occasionally you just can't stop it. <sighs> As I breathe in. <laughs> anyway. Getting the hernia was getting the hernia was easy. Getting it repaired was one heck of a <laughs> I had no idea. I went into the doctor and I said, I have a hernia. A left inguinal hernia. I want it fixed. And he said, sure. Okay, we'll fix it. Piece of cake. No one ever... <laughs> he said, recovery time about two weeks. I said, I'll bounce back right here. He said, I've had a cold before, no big sweat. <laughs> he said, well, we'll see. No one really explained to me, you know, what the recovery time was all about. There's like there's like threads inside my stomach holding together and when I use the muscles they're pulling against those threads and I'm saying what are those threads doing in there those sutures <laughs> it is quite painful but it's getting better it's much better than it was last week I tell you that much it's one of the adventures of life okay well the idea of free will so the individual has free will but that's to do what he or she wishes to do but does that mean that individual has the ability to take the rest of society with him or her? So this guy says, I have free will. I will do what I want to do. But what's, what's Barr saying? You have the right to do what you want to do. Do whatever you want. But you're just changing your own actions. You're not changing the means, the averages of history. Absolutely, the Hitler. Hitler's a good example, actually. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. What's name? Some others. Julius Caesar. Napoleon. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. I mean, these people are people that, as individuals, changed history. Now, what we're going to see, we're almost going to just jump into it. The Asimov realized that as well. You have currents of history, but you always have the possibility of anomalies, <laughs> historical anomalies, <clears throat> that can defy all odds and do the amazing. And they can wreck your theory. 
So for the average Joe, and you know, and this this general here, Rios, he's sort of the average Joe. He can't compete against the currents of history. The currents of history are too strong. They're going to sweep him down no matter what he does. But every once in a while, there'll be a Napoleon. <laughs> there'll be a there'll be a Hitler. There'll be a somebody that Genghis Khan, uh, Attila the Hun. There will be an Alexander. And without those individuals, those periods of history simply wouldn't have happened. So, psychohistorically, you can't predict them. You can't predict the Napoleon. You can't predict the Genghis Khan. You can't predict the Hitler. But, you can predict all the periods in between those guys. But, I mean, even with the foundation, there were some key individuals that stepped up and... I mean, the mayor and the trader. I mean, there's... But, but, but what did those mayors do, though, when the Selden crisis hit? They didn't anything in particular, but there had to be someone who was, like, kind of... Because prior the Selden crisis, they resolved themselves. The mayors just were, like, a, a key political figure at the time. Like, in the beginning, like, they, like uh, Slava Hardin says... You just don't do anything until you only have one cause of action left. Yeah. So mm. anybody could have done that. They weren't like a person who, by force of their own will, like altered the events going on around them. I love That's the mayor, though. The mayors are the coolest. Oh, the mayors are cool. Yeah. The mayors are coolest character ever. Yeah, yeah. And isn't it so cool to have this like superhuman person just being a mayor <laughs> rather than? And then he just the, and he knew he had the force of history with him. He was like. Yeah. He knew he had the force of history, and he wasn't fighting it. Now General Rios, he was fighting it. But the mayors were saying, the early mayors were saying, no, just don't do anything. It's, they're like on a rapid on a canoe. And they're going down the rapids. Just don't fight the current. Make small adjustments, but just go, 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 and you'll eventually come out at the other end. It's a very fascinating way of doing it. Whereas the general was saying, no, that's me. I'm going to do it. I am going to go opposite the current. I am going to change the course, the course of the water. At the same time, the Denver's in time of like Berlioz he was also trying to go again like he didn't see the way the old man saw of just letting history work its own party so that there's some I have to do something yeah and in the end it turned out that despite anything anybody did it was doomed from the start but like by this time they lost the like key central figure who just knows how to go on like snap a heart in the whole manner but psych history still works its magic and keeps the foundation going yeah what was the last thing you said the Mallow, the trader because the man who brought in the traders to the foundation oh yes 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 so he was another one who realized that I'm going to get all this power and then I'm going to do absolutely nothing nothing to do it yeah that's exactly right okay let's go over to page 37 this is the second book again, Foundation and Empire, chapter 4. And uh, about in the middle of the chapter. And let's read this conversation between uh, Brodwig and Cleon II. Brodwig smiled narrowly. He said coolly, It is an affair of a romantic idiot, but... Even a romantic idiot can be a deadly weapon when an unromantic rebel uses him as a tool. Sire, the man was popular here and is popular there. He is young. If he annexes a vagrant barbarian planet or two, he will become a conqueror. 
Now a young conqueror who has proven his ability to rouse the enthusiasm of pilots, miners, tradesmen, and such like rabble is dangerous at any time. Even if he lacked the desire to do uh, to do to you as your august father did to, to the usurper Ricker, then one of our loyal lords of the domain may decide to use him as a weapon. Now this is a situation where... Um, does, does anyone remember what was going on in this chapter? Emperor? Yeah, they just sent out... Um, they sent out Valriosi to... with a small group of ships out to the, you know, out to the periphery, and, um, I can't remember, somebody was on his ship or something and convinced him that he needed reinforcements because he was going to attack the foundation. Yeah. And he just asked for reinforcements, and isn't Broderick the second in command, or like the... Yeah, he's the, he's like the... He's the emperor of something, right? Emperor yeah. He's the guy who gives yeah. the emperor all his advice anyway, and, and he was saying, you know, don't send him reinforcements because you're going to give him too much power out there on the periphery and he could start, you know, taking over planets and stuff not in your name or whatever. Yeah. So this is an interesting thing. The control of your own forces. When you're running a monolithic empire, you don't want anybody to be too strong. And so this is an interesting thing. This is The reason I pointed out this point is it's one of the small aspects of maintaining an empire you make sure the opposition doesn't develop. You squash the opposition. And if you remember, later on, uh, Broderick and, um, and the, the general that was out there trying to you know, conquer the, the, uh, the foundation, they were eventually both arrested. Not because they weren't going to succeed, but because they might succeed, and that would produce a threat to the foundation. I mean, that would produce a threat to the empire himself. So some of these these empires stay in power longer through the destruction of competence. You destroy those people who are capable. It's not only that, though, but like we said, the end of the book, like, there was only one scenario in which the foundation was threatened. If there, if there had been a weak emperor then, and a strong general like Belvius, then he would have looked inwards and yes. because the emperor would be unable to keep power yeah. so there'd be turmoil inside and he would never look outwards if it had been a strong emperor and a weak general a weak general wouldn't want to conquer and yeah. Berlioz felt the need to conquer he needed to do something Yeah. so only a strong emperor and a strong general could threaten the foundation but then because the strong emperor he can't let his general become too strong like you say yeah exactly 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 so, you know, they, they can't let any the emperors can't let anybody get too strong, and that's and that's exactly how they that's exactly how they rule. They continue and to rule. You can think of times like that, like in history. I mean, this wasn't really an empire, but like in the Civil War, for instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like you know, everyone knows the president of the South was Jefferson Davis. But when you think of like the Civil War in the South, mm-hmm. who do you think of? You think of Robert E. Lee. You think of the yeah, generals yeah, who yeah. won the big battles. So I mean, it does like it does happen that. You know, if you don't, if you don't do something about taking care of people in the military who are, you know, at the head of large groups of men, if they win enough victories, all of a sudden they've won themselves, you know, or they feel like they've won themselves the right to challenge the rule. Challenge everything exactly. Right. In fact, oh, if yeah. you think about it, this is a genetic thing. It goes back. Look at look at packs of even of animals, lower animals like wolves, when they or you know uh, elk or whatever you look at, uh, um, lions. 
the the young the young guys eventually grow up and the king of the lions chases the younger lions away until one of them eventually gets strong and the courage enough to come in and they challenge the king and then the king goes off as an old daughtered you see and so that's what it these young people they are the threat to the people in power you were going to say something I remember the same thing with the gladiator the movie I mean after there's a new emperor Maximus the general is like if my men just see me then they'll all they'll come to my side they won't work for the emperor yeah. anymore yeah. he's like I mean because generals were powerful Jefferson Davis is a weak president Robert E. Lee if you wanted to probably could have taken over that post if you wanted to but exactly yeah. you can't have your generals become too powerful because okay. I mean they're in the they're in battle so their men would obviously trust them more okay yeah I agree that, that's um, that's that's one of the things that dominates the 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 plateau section the section where we have an empire in this case that's dominated by trading by the traders let's now talk about the anomaly that in the few minutes that are left remember the matrix who was the anomaly Neo. was that Neo. that's right Neo he was the, he was the anomaly they had a status quo but there was an anomaly I have a question. Yeah. Uh, this this actually has to do with something we were talking about a little while ago, but it's just been bugging me, and I'm sure you'll know. When we're talking about gods, what movie is this from? Um, when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. It's from some movie, and I can't, it's it's a sci-fi movie. Maybe it's from Stargate. Uh, it could be. It sounds sort of Stargate. Stargate. Okay. I'm it sorry. It sounds Stargate. It's been thinking about it. in the back of my head. And it's been bugging me. <coughs> the Goa old followed that, that, that advice okay let's talk about the mule because we only have a few minutes left actually Sorry. we have just we're really out of time so let's just start because we want to talk about the anomaly we don't have to talk too much about the mule but we have to identify what the mule actually is mutant. what's that he's a, mutant. a mutant he's an anomaly he's the one that doesn't fit in now in Star Trek there was a whole period where they were trying to genetically engineer mutants and Super they had the mutant wars, and, and they, they had, had the mutant wars. They had they had wars the, and, and whatever happened to those group of them? There was actually a, the, the they, Wrath uh, of Khan. Remember yeah, they that? got put on a. And there was also a Star Seed. Maybe there was a Star Trek episode where they yep. found a. Yep, they found the original. Yeah, they found the original boat of them. And, and what did these mutants do so cool. once they made these super people? Well, they were they were genetically engineered to be stronger, more aggressive, and everything else. And so they naturally wanted to conquer. They thought everyone else was inferior, which they were. They were a whole bunch of Napoleons. Yeah. There are too many Napoleons, and you couldn't you couldn't run the rapids of time anymore. Psychohistory couldn't work anymore. You couldn't have these long epochs of time where the statistical forces would dominate. You had these mutants that were coming in and they were challenging the flow of history. It's kind of every society does that though. Or I mean at least like in science fiction, like in Star Trek, you know, they start genetically modifying people. Then there was um uh, there's kind of this like recurring theme in Stargate where they were always trying to genetically modify better, you know, hosts. Mm-hmm. And then in Star Wars, you know, they were genetically, you know, cloning people, you know, yeah. they clone what's his name to make like a whole army, you know, like everybody always tries to create, you know, through genetic manipulation or something, the next great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we, we have to end now, but let me just say one last thing. The big element to draw from Yule, and we're going to be definitely getting into the third, uh, second foundation, the third movie, the third, the third novel uh, on Tuesday. And then you'll be handing in your assignment on Thursday, okay? Because today's today's what? Today's Thursday, Thursday right? Yes. Yeah, so you'll be we'll be finishing the third novel on Tuesday, and then we'll be handing in the assignment on on Thursday. 
It'll be we'll be finished in the second foundation on Tuesday. So the big thing to remember about the mule is that he's the Napoleon. He's the anomaly. And for psychohistory to work as a science, you have to be able to account for the anomalies. You can't just count on the huge currents of history, statistically defined, flowing through. Because every once in a while, there's a, a genetic a genetic mutation that occurs that produces a personality that can change the force of history. And you be in order to chart history, you have to be able to account for both the aberrations, the anomalies, as well as the currents. It's a fascinating. It's a fascinating discussion of how you actually can do that. All right. Well, this is great. I really enjoyed this class. So, look, uh, I will see you all on Tuesday, okay? And we'll and we'll go right into it. We'll finish up a discussion of the mule real quickly, and then go right into the second foundation.